Well, thank you, Chrissy. Uh, the kids are going to stay in the service today because we value our children uh, and we want them a, a part of it. And they're actually going to give some flavor to our service today because we're actually going to do something that um, growing up in kids ministry, I did this all the time and it was lots of fun. We're going to act out the story a little bit today, which means we need some volunteers. Now, I'm not going for the regular old people that always put up their hand. I'm looking for people, if your heart is beating right now, that's the Holy Spirit <laughs> speaking to you. He's convicting you. <laughs> Who's ever heard that before? Man, oh yeah, for sure. So I just, it's only a couple people. I'm looking for someone uh, who is a magician. Oh, Chrissy, you can come on up. You give her a hand. She did a great job this morning. Uh, she, uh... So Chrissy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to find, you can choose one of these hats and uh, something to drape over yourself, like a, a shawl or something that's in the bag. I need someone who uh, can speak Greek. Besides me. I'm just joking. I can't. Bob, come on. Really? Oh. Anybody else? Does anybody have Greek origins? Like ancestry? No? Come on. I, don't, I think you guys are lying to me. Okay, we'll come back to that. Actually, I need someone who's about 15 to 17 years old. Maybe 18, who's nice, kind, maybe has a last name that starts with an H. I'll let one of the Hovick, Hovick boys decide who's going to come. Or you can come up together as one person. As one person. Okay. I need someone who is... Kind of loud and mouthy, who's a little bit older, who maybe, uh, I don't know, runs their own business, wears glasses, I don't know, starts with, rhymes with um, Reichel, I don't know, something like that. Oh, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. You can come on up. And I need uh, someone who's nice, kind, gentle, <laughs> gentle. Uh, Melinda, no. Mary, you don't, have to, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say a single word, no lines, nothing. You just have to stand there. No. Matthew, come on up. You can join with Michael. And I need just one person who will be the townsperson. They don't have to do anything. Yeah? Okay, Judah, come on up. All right. Okay, so there's some costumes in here. If you want to just grab some stuff. And uh, so you guys are going to be the town of, uh, the, the, the area of Samaria, okay? Which, which area of Samaria? That's funny. You can decide. Okay, we're in Samaria. Now, Samaria is an interesting place. It's a little outside of the normal uh, Hebrew, Jewish kind of traditions, okay? Who remembers the story of the Good Samaritan? You remember that story? 
how the man walks on the, on the road and he gets beaten up and robbed. And then all these people come to save him, but nobody actually wants to save him. They see him and they kind of avoid him. Who actually does the work to help this, this guy off the street? The good Samaritan. Now the reason why that story is so palpable and like impacting and why Jesus told that story is because Hebrews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans were like, they felt that they were kind of beneath them. They're like the long lost yokel cousins. Who has a long, long lost, distant, kind of, kind of embarrassed of cousin? You can put up your hand. Maybe you're in this room right now. I don't know. They're kind of beneath you. Kind of, they're kind of beneath you. They don't like, live the way you live. They don't practice the way you practice things. They kind of they live a different lifestyle, and you're not really that proud of them. Samaritans spoke Hebrew. They grew up in the Jewish tradition, but they had different views. And a, a, a pure stock Hebrew thought less of them. That's why Jesus is saying the good Samaritan saw past race and ethnicity and saw the heart. So today you are the long-lost yokel cousins. You're the Samaritans, okay? And this is where our story takes place. And it starts with you guys in Samaria and a guy named Simus Megas. You want to come out here? Yes, very good. Face your people. Now, as you just saw, Simon Magnus is a brilliant magician. He's a wizard. And he had all these tricks. Very good. That's excellent. You, know you, go, you can like go around and like do tricks with the people. And he has this following. Simon Magnus is really well known because he has this power. Now some of it, like some magicians, is kind of like mind tricks. But some, some people believe that Simus Magnus actually has actual power, the dark arts. He's a magician, and he's got this following, he's got this group of people, and they know him as the great wizard. Now, Simus Magnus believes that he actually is a diviner, that he has, like, this power from on high, this divine ability to manipulate the world. And that's really important to Simus Magnus because guess what that means? Money. He would exchange his, his abilities for coin. Okay, it's a pretty, pretty big deal, pretty normal thing. And in Samaria, this is quite normal. They have, you have no problem with Simus Magus. Well, one day, after Saul had kind of started persecuting the Christians, the people were following Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, and they all kind of scattered. They kind of left the city of Jerusalem. And they went out into the wider world to flee persecution. Now, most of those people were different than pure stock Hebrews. Do you remember what they were called? Starts with an H. Hellenists. Remember that word? They're, they're Greek Jews. They're not Hebrew Hebrews. They're Hebrew Greek Jews who now have Jesus in their hearts. It's kind of a, an interesting concoction. And one of those people, his name is Philip. So, would the young Philip, Philippi's, come forward? 
Now, this is actually interesting. This actually is we're going to work out quite well. So you guys can come over here. One of you has to choose to be Philip the evangelist, and one of you has to choose to be Philip the apostle. You can rock, paper, scissor it if you want. It's all good. You want to be the apostle? Okay, so you're the apostle, so you can go sit down. <laughs> Philip the apostle is not a part of this story at all. <laughs> Interesting distinction. Philip and Acts is not Philip the apostle. Very different people. Sorry. You are Philip the evangelist. You are Philip the Hellenist. You're a Greek-speaking Hebrew who loves Jesus. And you come into Samaria, and you start preaching about Jesus. So get at it. What would you say? God is good. Tell, not me. I already know that. And God is good. God is good. Who, is, who else is good? Uh, Jesus is good. Who is Jesus, though? The Son of God. Okay, and I baptize you in the name of the Father. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> too far, too far. So Philip goes around, and he starts preaching the good news of Jesus. And he's preaching to Sumerians. He's not necessarily preaching to just Hellenists or just Hebrews. He's now starting to kind of mix up the pot a little bit. Notice who Philip is not. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12 disciples. Who was Philip, what was he originally appointed to do? If we reach, look back in Acts for a little bit, he had a buddy. His name was Stephen. What happened to Stephen? First martyr, he's dead. Philip was a part of that lunch line group, if you can remember so he was chosen as one of, the, one of the guys to kind of administrate and do, do good work. But he's not one of the 12. That's an interesting distinction. He's not a pure stock Hebrew. And he's in Samaria, the local cousins, preaching about Jesus. And the people in Samaria eat it up. They love the message. Here's the funny thing. The people in Samaria were waiting for their own version of the Messiah. And they were already kind of poised to kind of receive this message. And so Philip goes around. You can kind of wander around preaching the good news of Jesus. And when Philip comes near, you just raise your hand or give like a thumbs up like, yes, I have accepted Jesus. You can go around. Go around, Philip, and then come back. Don't run away. There you go. Like in and out of the crowd. I imagine Philip may have a little more charisma. We got some. There you go. Now, now he's going. Now, this is interesting. Philip's got this kind of power. He's spirit-filled. He's this new humanity, this new of, of Jesus living through him. And Simon thinks, whoa, what is up? Interesting. Well, once people start to, to start to believe, then they get baptized. And everybody in the area that Philip comes in contact with believes and is baptized, including Simon. So why don't you baptize Simon? Don't. You can pretend. We've got, uh, I think this is bleach. <laughs> okay, we'll just pretend. It's just water. It's clear liquid. What could go wrong? Okay, so then the little, the, Judah, why don't you come out here? There's something else that, that Philip is doing. So this, this, uh, this little boy can't walk, okay? Oh, oh boy. 
But then Philip, by the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he's healed. Simon is in awe. He believes. Yeah, run. Go run. Go for a run, boy. Oh, my God. I've... That's the slowest he's ever moved. (laughs) But he is walking, so that's good. Simon can't believe. Where does this power come from? Who has this power? He believes in the power of 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 the God that Philip is talking about. He believes. No question. Well, news gets back that Samaria has accepted Jesus. But there's something that didn't happen with Philip. I'm not even quite sure why because it won't always be this way, but none of you in Samaria received the Holy Spirit. So word gets back to Jerusalem, where Peter and John are residing, and kind of the the apostles there send Peter and John, as kind of dignitaries, out to Samaria to, to inspect what's going on. So Peter and John, why don't you come on out? After a long journey. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. And just take a look around, Peter and John. And what do you see? Sad people. <laughs> they, they are a little bit. They are a little low energy today. What, do you, what else do you see? Uh, uh, I don't know. It's people who are seeking. So what do they need? Jesus. What else do they need? The Holy, Spirit. the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John lay hands on the people of Samaria. So why don't you just go and just lay a hand on a shoulder of a couple people around. You can go do that too, John. And while they lay hands on the people, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And like in the early Acts, they're filled with the newness, the numa spirit of God. They're speaking other languages, and there's this inextricable power that's demonstrated. Now at this point, Simon the wizard kind of loses his mind. He can't believe. He's seen Philip, he's seen the miracles, he's heard the word, he believes the message. But now he sees this new kind of exchange of actual, literal power. And so he comes over to Peter. So he scoots over to Peter. And Peter, and he says, Peter, can I have a word with you? He says, I want that power. Can I pay for it? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. How much, Peter says. You're a businessman. Wrong choice for Peter. Oh, yeah, what do you... So, that's not what Peter says. In fact, Peter, like, loses his mind with, with anger. He rips a strip off of Simon. Like, tears him up and says, How dare you ever think that you can pay for God's power? So you need to look a little more angry, Peter. Like, you can even use your hands. Yes, there you go. And, and Peter basically curses Simon. So this is, a, this is a big deal. You are going way too far here, Simon, and you totally misunderstand what's going on. And Simon falls to his knees and says, Oh, my. Pray for me that this doesn't happen to me. There you go. End scene. That's the end of our story. Give them all a hand. Very good.
And this is how the story of Acts 8 basically goes. And it ends there. And it seems like a really straightforward story. And you can read it through at home. It's actually quite long, so I won't read it for you this morning. And it seems pretty straightforward. And pretty kind of cut and dry. Like this, this Simon, this wizard guy, he's trying to buy the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. Simon chews him out, etc., 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 and we move on. It's curious, though, that this story happens after Saul's persecution and the scattering of the Christians beyond Jerusalem. It's curious that Philip, the non-apostle, is the one doing the evangelizing. It's curious that the Holy Spirit hadn't come quite yet in Samaria without Peter and John showing up. It's curious that Peter and John really never worked together again after that. And it's curious that Philip doesn't really stay in Samaria. He, he moves on. And what's more curious is what happens to Simon Magus. And this is where history gets a little bit confusing and a little bit murky. Personally, where I love history. Because you never quite know what the right answer is. Many, many people, including early church fathers, say that Simon Magus never believed in Jesus. They say that Simon Magus actually was just there at, to, to skimp the money and to make money, and he was crooked and, and evil. And he actually became, to, to the early Christians, this idea of him, the myth of him grew, that he was basically the first antichrist. So when we look at the book of Revelation, and we see the Antichrist coming, we often think of as a, a person, like, a, like, a, like an embodied human, like a political leader or something. But most of the time it's used in the New Testament is it's just anti-Christian. It's a person who's embodying anti-Jesus. The antithesis of Jesus. That a, a magician, a wizard, would exchange his power for money. And that he would think of himself as a diviner over above everybody else. It's a very common way that the ancients believed. You go to the shrines, you go to the temples, you see the priests. They're the conduits for God. They're the conduits for their, for their gods. They're the conduits for this divine power. And they're going to exchange it for money. And it became like a political power grab. But in the New Testament church, this new idea that was breaking into the, into the, into the human, human world is that now anybody and everybody could not only meet the risen Jesus, reconnect with the God of one of the universe, but actually his spirit could indwell you. That you could actually be a light, a conduit for God himself. Because his spirit, his life, his breath is inside of you. His power is in you. You don't need to go to the diviner. You don't need to go to the, to the shaman. You don't even need to go to the temple. You are the living temple. That is a very radical idea. And it didn't matter who you were, how old you were, how rich you were. If you were white or black or male or female or a child, God would fill all of us up. And you can't buy that for money. This is a, this is a new idea. And so Simon Magnus asking for this exchange is like, that is anti-Jesus, anti-Christian. And so this idea of Simon Magnus actually grew that he became like the first heretic. He became the, the template for 
all other heresies, that he actually became like a cult leader. And in time, he had his own religious following, and people deified him, and they worshipped him. And some believe that he actually was kind of the father of Gnosticism, which is basically saying that uh, the idea of that, that our spirits are more important than our bodies, and that God is a spirit, and, and our bodies are bad, and the world is bad, and it's not, a, it's not a Jesus idea. Jesus is flesh and blood. He came as a human being, a whole human being. And there isn't a, a separation between that. So Simon Magus kind of got a bad rap. And it looks like really simple on the surface. But the more you sit with it, I think the more complex this story actually becomes. And I think the only way that I could really seem to get my head around it is by drawing. Who's a, who draws diagrams here? Just a couple of us, eh? Okay, well, I draw diagrams for just about everything. I'm a, I'm a visual learner. It's how I see things. When I see things, I see them in pictures. So what I wanted to do is just draw kind of uh, the first circle. Can everybody see that? Just give me one second here. This is Jerusalem. This is where all the action took place. All the beliefs around kind of the Hebrew mindset, the Jewish mindset. It's really, it's hard for us. It's so hard for us because it's like second nature for us now that we don't even really think about it. But back in the first century, there's really only one religion that, ha- that is monotheistic. Some people think the Egyptians kind of dabbled in monotheism a little bit. But Jewishness, Hebrew thinking, Hebrew theology was monotheistic. There's one God. You can't see him. You can't own him. You can't possess him. You can't make him an idol. He's Yahweh, the great I am. This is like the hallmark of Hebrew thinking. Very, very important. And it's, and it's in Jerusalem that this happens. Because where does God live? Judah. Where does God, where did the, where did the Hebrews think God lived? You don't know. Who else? Matthew. In Jerusalem? Yes. He lived in a special place in Jerusalem. Where is it? Temple. Where in the temple? Holy of Holies. Who can go in there? High priest. How many times a year? Once. This is a big deal. So God lives in here. This is God's house. It's where he lives. So if you wanted to go see God, you had to go to Jerusalem. And a good Hebrew... A God-fearing Hebrew would try to make a pilgrimage from wherever they are in the known world at least once in their life to go to the temple. That's why at Passover time and festival times there'd be thousands of people packed in this city because they want to go to God's house. It's where he lives. They want to read his scriptures. They want to participate in his order with the priests and all the people and all the sacrifices so that they could be atoned for their sins. It's pretty important. But then something happens. This this guy shows up. His name is Jesus. And he totally turns everything on its head. 
And he says that he is God's son. And he says that he's going to die and he's going to come back to life and then he's going to give his spirit, God's spirit, to everybody. And, and that's what happens. And so there's these 12 other guys that follow suit with him. You know, etc., etc. The disciples. And they're not sent in to Jerusalem. They're sent out. Jesus says, you'll start here. You'll start in Jerusalem. But you will move on to Judea. And where else? Samaria. And we'll, we'll get there. And the whole world. Now this is where it kind of gets complicated because now you're having a collision of worldviews. You're having a clash of inner identities. When you're a part of a culture, the easiest thing to do is take your culture for granted. It's so easy. The things that we take for granted, we don't even think about. The things that are just commonplace for us, it's just the way that it is. There's, it's so obvious to us, we don't spend any time thinking about it until we run into conflict. And this happened in Jerusalem itself because the Hellenists had moved in and heard about Jesus. But they were, they were also Jews and they loved Jesus and this is when we ran into the food line problems and the language barrier problems and the appointment of Stephen and Philip to kind of take care of that stuff. And they kind of ran into some mild conflict, and it, but it was okay. They, they got through it. But now, as the disciples are moving out, you got Paul kind of persecuting. And these people are starting to move out into the wider world. It's getting a little bit harder and harder and more complicated because the worldview is getting less and less familiar the farther they go out. And here's where I think this story gets really complicated and why I think it's important for us. is because Simon Magnus was wrong. Clearly. He did not understand Jesus. He didn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he didn't get it. But you can hardly blame him. He was a part of a different culture. He had a different mindset, a different worldview. And it had worked for him for a long time. We're in a, we're in a world that doesn't take care of their poor. There's no social net. There's no, there's no retirement savings. It's a world where you got to hustle. Simon Magnus figured it out. He was successful. And when he saw the power of, of Philip, Luke says that he believed. I think you could put an asterisk. He believed as much as he was capable of believing. Then when he saw Peter come in and lay on the hands of the Holy Spirit, he was like over the moon. He didn't see it as trickery. He didn't see it as mind games. He didn't see what they were doing as a, as a joke or something that he could necessarily take advantage. He truly saw the power of the Holy Spirit, and he wanted it. And I think Peter kind of missed the boat. I think it's fascinating that there's two other people in this story that have no mention at all. 
Philip is silent. John is silent. What we know about John is that John is actually a very thoughtful, reflective, very philosophical, patient. He's Jesus' like one of his closest friends. He's, he's chosen as Jesus' official biographer because he understands people. And he understood Jesus, not just as the, as the figure, but as the human being. Like he understood Jesus' heart. He was intuitive. If you read John's gospel, you can see this all over the page. He's just a very intuitive thinker. He's a very empathic thinker. But John is silent in this, in this story. Philip, who's the original guy to evangelize, he's the one who spent all the time with Simon. He's silent. He doesn't say anything. We don't know what he thinks about Simon Magnus. We're not, he doesn't tell us. We know that Peter comes in, lopping heads. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's right. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. But I wonder if Simon or if Peter kind of just missed the boat a little bit. If we, if we kind of pause in the story of Peter, this story happens before Peter realizes what Jesus is actually trying to tell them. Peter doesn't yet know. He hasn't yet done it. He hasn't yet gone there. He hasn't understood that the message of Jesus is meant for the whole world. It'll start in Jerusalem. It'll move out to Judea and Samaria. But eventually, Peter, it's going to go to the whole world. And you're going to run into to pockets of people all around the globe from every walk of life every known language, every known culture, with every theological construction imaginable, you're going to run into all these people, Peter. And you know what? You can't just go lopping heads. You can't just bulldoze whoever you run into. You can't take for granted your worldview, Peter. And I just wonder, this really interesting, complicated story, it leaves on an ambiguous note. Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Simon, nor to Philip, nor to John, nor to Peter. It just kind of ends. Philip moves on, but in this context, it just kind of ends. And I don't even know if Luke meant to do that. But the more I researched, the more I read, the more I sat with it, I just thought, this is a, actually a really perplexing story. And how, what does it mean to me today as a 21st century white man in Canada who was born and raised in a Christian church with a Christian worldview? How am I interacting with my world? Do I assume everybody shares my language? Probably. Do I assume everybody shares a similar kind of worldview to me? Unfortunately, probably. Should I be challenged to take more of a tack of Philip and John and be empathic towards the people around me that may not understand yet? I hope so. What's really amazing about this story 
is two things remain true all the time. No matter what happens. In the book of Acts, in the early church, it's always the truth, always the case. The Holy Spirit is always working. Peter's filled up with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking in tongues. He's doing great things. But he's on a journey. He's not sanctified immediately. He hasn't become an image bearer of Christ, like a perfect mirror image overnight. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes dreams. It takes failing. It takes chastisement and correction. It takes empathy. The Holy Spirit is doing his work and the people of this story, no matter what, always, as he's doing for us. And the second thing is that God's grace has already gone ahead. That this is, this is like God is already gracing the world with him, his presence and his love long before they ever show up. Long before they land on the shores of Sicily and wherever else, God's already been working. And so we, all we have to do is, like Peter and these guys, just join in the work that God's already doing. Being confident that the Holy Spirit is still working inside of us. That we're absolutely going to make mistakes. But, but we can be led by his Spirit into the grace and the mercy that he's already kind of laid out for us. And the more we do that, I think the more empathic, the more loving, the more caring the more non-threatened we become with the people that don't necessarily see the world that we do. And that's okay. Jesus says, you're going to start here, but you're going to work out to the whole world, and eventually the whole world will look and smell and sound and taste more like Jesus. Today we get to celebrate two of our very own we're going to Columbia. So I ask Janice and Jen to come on up. Now, our mission trip formally kind of fizzled out to Columbia, but these two are still going down to Columbia, which is a different culture, where they speak a different language. They have different belief systems and histories. And they are like our, our Peters and our Johns and our Phillips going as emissaries for Jesus. And they're joining other laborers who are already down there to spread the the love and joy of Jesus. So I was hoping, because there's risk always involved in in global travel, if we could, uh, if you feel comfortable, just come on up and you guys can come to the middle here. And we just lay our hands on them and we'll just pray for them. Jesus, we thank you that you're the light of the world. We thank you that you shine in dark places, that uh, you go before us, that your light uh, is, is, is gentle and kind and warm, that you are an unstoppable force of love in the world. And we thank you that we get to, to join you in your labor, that we get to join you in the work of spreading your love. And we get to do that as ourselves. You don't have to pretend to be anybody else or or, uh, be anything special. That your Holy Spirit 
guides us, illuminates us, fills us with, with courage, makes us more human, makes us more alike in your image, at the same time making us more fully ourselves. And that we get to do that uh, with you. We thank you that your grace and your mercy has already gone ahead of us. And so we pray uh, for Janice and Jen as they get on a plane and they fly down to Columbia and they meet all kinds of new people and they, they're put in situations that they may not be comfortable with, that Jesus, you'd just be with them. That they would trust you, that your spirit be working inside of them effortlessly, naturally. That they would just be filled with a peace that only you can give. They would be able to see uh, where they can help, they can see where you're at work, and they can join you in this beautiful work of laboring for the gospel. And so we thank you for them. May you, may you keep them safe. Uh, may you uh, provide uh, security for them in the airports and everything else with their bags and their luggage. And may you just bless them as they go. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.